Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. God is good. That's the title of the sermon this morning, and that's the message of James chapter 1 and verse 17. God is good. Here I am in an almost empty auditorium, and it's the one time in my life when I would have wanted to do a, a call and a response with the congregation. One of the most uh, famous call and responses between worship leader and congregation is for the worship leader to say, God is good. And the congregation to say, all the time. And then the worship leader to say, all the time. And the congregation to say, God is good. You know, that's the message of James 1, 17 and 18. You see there, it says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This precious text emphasizes not only that God is good, but also that God does not change. That is, that God is good all the time. This is a major theme in Scripture, Old Testament and New. Listen to this verse. I'm quoting from 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What's that? 14 words. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You do well to memorize that verse in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 16, 34. Well, and here, here's a tip, let's say, for my middle schoolers. I love the middle schoolers. Okay, middle schoolers, if your youth leader tells you that you have to memorize seven or eight or nine verses, just memorize this verse. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Because if you memorize that verse, not only are you memorizing 1 Corinthians 16, 34, but you've also memorized Ezra 3, 11, Psalm 106, 1, Psalm 107, 1, Psalm 118, 1, Psalm 136, 1, Jeremiah 33, 11, and that's not even all of them. This is a major refrain that is repeated. One of the most often repeated statements in the Old Testament is give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now let's break apart that simple statement that's such a refrain throughout the Old Testament. It starts with an imperative, a command. Give thanks to the Lord. And then it gives a reason why we should follow that command. Give thanks to the Lord for, there's the grounding clause, the reason clause, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So it begins with what we do, live thankfully, and then it backs it up with why we do that. This is how we live and why we live that way. This is an attitude and action of gratitude and thanksgiving and rejoicing and worship. This is an attitude and action that is based upon the attributes of God. That's essentially what I'm trying to say to you this morning. Your attitudes and actions should be based upon the attributes of God, which is another way of saying how we think about God defines and determines how we live this life. 
How we think about God determines how we think about ourselves, what we regret about our past and how we deal with guilt and regret, what we think about the present and whether we grumble and complain or we give thanks and how we think about the future. Are we fearful and timid or what? How we think about God defines and determines the way that we live. Give thanks to the Lord. That's the way we live. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. God is good. So we want to simply ask and answer three questions about that, mostly from James 1.17 and a couple of related passages. First question, what does it mean that God is good? Well, James 1.17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Look back a little bit at James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. You know, that's another way of saying that God is good. If you look at James 1.13 carefully, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for, and then there's a claim about the character of God, for, and here's the claim about the character of God, God cannot be tempted by evil. This claim about the activity of God, that he doesn't tempt anyone, is based upon the character of God, that he cannot be tempted by evil. This is, in fact, the foundation for all morality. Morality cannot be relative if the character of God is absolute. Morality is what it is. Right and wrong are what they are because and only because God is who he is and God is so perfectly and eternally who he is. There's no change or variation in his character. The divine nature is unchangeably holy. The divine nature is unchangeably good. So he is always righteous and evil is always evil because God is always God. What does it mean that God is good? Well, how we think about God defines and determines how we live. What does it mean that God is good? Church, would you have an anchor that could stabilize your ever-shifting spirit? Well, then church, get a grip on the character of God. Church, would you quit? Would you like to quit being known as grumpy and greedy? And instead, would you like to be known as gracious and generous? The only way for that transformation to happen is for you to see the goodness and generosity that is in the character of God and to actually become a partaker of the divine nature. That's what verse 18 of James 1 is going to talk about. The miracle of regeneration is when we become partakers of that divinely good nature. What does it mean that God is good? Well, it means that there's no evil in God. There's only light and good in God. And that's why James 1.16, James 1.16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Sometimes you get to a verse, you're reading a paragraph, and you get to a verse, and you're like, oh, 
Praise God for that verse. What if we were reading this paragraph and it said in verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then we read verse 15, then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. And what if that period at the end of verse 15 was the period that ended the book of James? Disaster. Praise God for verse 16, because James comes right back and says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God above. So verses 16 and 17 are a way out of the death spiral of verses 14 and 15. That, that phrase, do not be deceived in verse 16. The longer I looked at it, and I kind of carefully diagrammed it with a pencil and a red pen on a piece of paper last week or the week before, the, the do not be deceived in verse 16 is a, a hinge that refers both to verses 13 to 15 upward, and it's a hinge that swings and refers to verses 17 and 18 downward. And all that's encompassed in what it means that God is good. In other words, as this hinge of do not be deceived swings upward and it refers to verses 13 to 14, it's saying God is good, so don't be deceived about your own sinfulness. That is, quit making excuses about your sinfulness. Quit blame shifting and quit rolling it downhill as if God was the cause of your sinfulness. But it also shifts downward to verses 17 and 18 because it says don't be deceived about what kind of God God is and what kind of gifts God gives. It goes up and down. But the reality of it is that God is of such perfect goodness. God is of such unmixed, pure goodness that he can never be enticed by evil, verse 13, he can never tempt anyone to evil, verse 13. And he can always, verse 17, give the good gift that you need in each and every situation. This is a marvelous treatment of the goodness of God. Now, how about a definition? What does it mean that God is good? Uh, I just uh, read a transcript this week of... Uh, sermon that Kevin DeYoung gave this month, and it was about God's goodness, and this was the definition that Kevin DeYoung used. God's goodness is the overflowing bounty of God by which he who receives nothing and lacks nothing communicates blessing to his creation and all of his creatures. God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. To enjoy God's goodness is to enjoy the sweetness, friendliness, benevolence, and generosity of God. You hear that? God's goodness is God's bounty by which God, who needs nothing and receives nothing, gives every good gift to his children. And God's goodness is the opposite of stinginess and cruelty. God's goodness is what makes him a father who would never give his child a stone when his child needs a roll of bread. God's goodness is the opposite of stinginess. God's goodness is his overflowing generosity in giving good gifts to his children. Every blessing is given to his children. You see there that, they, that every blessing is given to us from above. This is God's goodness. 
If I could spin you from James back to the Old Testament one more time, go to Exodus 33, because here we see the glory and the goodness of God. And in seeing the glory and the goodness of God, the, the amazing thing is, I want to say we're not seeing two things, we're, we're seeing one thing. Because look at how it happens in Exodus 33. Moses is interacting with God, fascinating. And Moses asks God a favor in Exodus 33, verse 13. He says, hey, God, could you hook me up with this little favor? Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. So Moses asks God to show him his ways, to almost to show him himself. And then look at verse 17 and following of Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God says in verse 17, I'm going to give you this favor that you asked for. And look what he says. Verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. Answer, verse 19, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by you where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back but my face shall not be seen. What a brilliant, what a brilliant passage. Paradigmatic in its explanation of God's glory. We get this beautiful phrase, the cleft of the rock there. But the fascinating element here is it's not one, it's not two things. They're actually conjoined to be one because Moses asks to see God's glory, verse 18. And God responds positively in verse 19 by saying, okay, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Moses asks for glory. God supplies goodness because the two are absolutely inseparable and intertwined. Glory. How do we define glory? Sometimes we grab a page out of a definition theology book too quick. Glory is, it's inexpressible. It's the, it's the inexpressible weight of the reality of the depth of God. And goodness is the inexpressibly generous outflowing of that glory to meet human and even creational needs. It's almost as if, and I'm beyond my depth here, it's almost as if as ineffably glorious as God is inwardly, so immeasurably good is he in extension outwardly. As if the glory is the depth of his character inward and the goodness is the breadth of his generosity, creation word. God's glory and God's goodness. How do we define God's goodness? Well, when we're talking about the attributes of God, and Darren's actually teaching a course right now on the attributes of God. You can get it on the church website. He puts out one uh, every week. 
and he's working through some of the attributes of God. The, one, of the, one of the essential things to get right about the attributes of God is that when we say something like God is good, we're not saying so comparatively. We're saying so originally. In other words, if I got a plate of nachos and I said, man, these nachos are good. I mean that comparatively. I happen to be speaking to you as an individual who has noshed many a plate of nachos. And so I'm able to compare the current plate of nachos to other plates of nachos that I have eaten with a happy heart in days gone by. When we say God is good, we're not saying that God is good comparatively to other things. What we are confessing is that everything we can or will possibly ever think of as good is good comparatively to God, who is goodness. God defines the reality of what is good. This is one of the things that's kind of like, what? That jars us when Jesus says in Mark 10, there's like a good guy talking to Jesus who's done a lot of good and generous things. And Jesus says to this guy, no one is good except for God. What does that mean? Does that mean that your grandma has never done anything sweet and good to you? Of course, that's not what Jesus means. I, I have seen you as a church, actually in these last nine, 10 weeks, I've seen you as a church demonstrate goodness to one another and to our city in marvelous ways. We do good things. But when Jesus says no one is good except for God, this is the sense that he means it is. God, God is goodness in himself originally and infinitely and immutably and perfectly with no increase or no decrease forever. That's why James 1.17 is going to say no variation or shifting shadow. Only God is good in that sense. That's what it means that God is good. James is at great pains in verse 17 to say that God's goodness and the good gifts that God gives come from a God in whom, in whose character, there is no variation or shadow due to change. I want to talk about the immutability of God um, next week, Lord willing. But the goodness of God here is coupled with his unchanging nature. If God is good, then an element of his goodness is that it could never turn to badness or mediocrity or neutrality. It will always be good. If he is good, he's good all the time. And so then we have an unbreakable hope. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his loving kindness endures forever. That's a little bit of what it means that God is good. Second question. What does it mean that God's good gifts are from above? Here again, look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God's giving is incorruptible. It's good. God's giving is inerrant. Note there that it's perfect. And God's giving is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Well, God's good and perfect gifts that come to us from above, listen to me, church, 
are designed to lead us back to Him. In other words, the good gifts that come from above are designed to get us there. Heaven is the origin and heaven is the goal. Ephesians 1, we've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ so that after his resurrection and ascension, we too can join him there. The gifts are from above and they're meant to lead us there. Church, we, we should use God's gifts to do good to our neighbor in this world. But church, let us never use God's gifts as if they are not from above and as if they are not meant to lead us to God. So we do good and we share and we're generous in ways that point to our resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. What does it mean that God's good gifts are from above? Well, it means that the the only good way for us to be rescued is for us to be rescued from above. In other words, you can see verse 17 as the solution to the problem that, 12, that verses 12 through 16 present us. Verse 12 actually gives us a little glimmer of hope. It says, if we remain steadfast, then we can receive the crown of life. But then it's almost as if James snatches that hope away. Because in verses 13 and 14 and 15, he says, you're not going to make it. Trial and temptation are so powerful and the lure of deceit even within you is so powerful and your disordered desires are such that when you're deceived, you get on that slippery slope of death and, 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 and we're in this disaster situation. We talked last week about the fact that we're so deceived that we certainly can't even understand our own deception, must much less rectify our own deception unless there's help from above to rescue us from our condition. This is exactly what verse 17 is saying in context. How are we to be delivered from death and sin? Well, every good thing we need for our deliverance comes not from below and not from within, but from above, from God. Eternal death for sin is a wage that we earn. Eternal life and salvation from sin is a gift bountifully bestowed upon us from above. If we know this church, and we do know this, but if we really know it in the back of our teeth and in the bottom of our feet, if we really know this, then there will be no pride in any church member. What, what do I have that I wasn't given? What, all I've done is, is, is kind of stink up the gifts that God has given me. But anything good in my life is a gift from God. How we think about God's goodness defines and determines how we think about our own performance and our own righteousness. Our attitude should be constantly give thanks to the Lord. Not parade my own performance, but give thanks to the Lord. For any good that I do, I do because the good gift of God, the grace of God operating in me. This knowledge that all God's good gifts are from above makes us such grateful people. This is how we transition from an attitude of entitlement, an attitude of grouchy grasping, to an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. The most beautiful people are the most thankful people. 
The hardest people to be around are those who are always grasping and always grumbling and always complaining. But this knowledge of God's good gifts is what moves us from the one type of living to the other because your actions and your attitudes will be determined by what you think about the character of God. God is good. So if we answered our second question, what does it mean that God's good gifts come from above? Let's ask a third question that the context would cause us to answer if we're reading observantly and slowly and carefully. And that's this. How does God's goodness... Verse 17, enable me to fight sin. Verses 13, 14, and 15. How does God's goodness enable me to fight sin? Well, it's the character of God that comes first. Notice again verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I actually think verse 17 and this marvelous statement of the goodness of God that God cannot be tempted by evil, I actually read that and I actually uh, warmly commend it to you as a double invitation. It is an invitation first to closer communion with God. Oh, church, get closer and closer and closer and closer to God. Because as you do, you will discover that God is good and God is good all the time and there is no shadow of turning with him and God is the one being in the universe that the closer and the closer and the closer you get to him, you will find him more and more flawless. You will find him better and better and better in your experience the closer you get to him. The more you're satisfied with God's goodness, the less you'll need to be gratified by sin. It's an invitation to, to closer communion with God. And secondly, it's an invitation to further separation from sin. To be able to say, I'm a child of God, and I'm a friend of God, and I'm called to be like God, and if God cannot be tempted by evil, and God cannot be the one tempting me to evil, then why, oh why, would I dally with evil? Why would I sit still next to sin when I'm a child of God and God, God is of, of pure nature to even behold evil and God has shared his grace with me. So why would I sin against him and go toward evil? The deception of sin always dampens the goodness of God. The deception of sin always darkens the goodness of God. The deception of sin always decreases your perception of God's goodness because sin depends on your decreasing awareness of God's goodness. The process of sin and temptation depends upon your decreasing awareness of God's goodness. In that first temptation, when Satan asked a question, this was not an innocent question. The question itself was an aspersion against the character of God. When he says, you mean God forbid something from you? Well, then how can God really be good, you see? Well, how can God really be good if he made this thing and then he told you that you can't have this thing? How can the limitations of God's law be good for you? Listen, the very essence of evil in that first temptation is seen in the interpretation of the divine limitation. You hear me? The essence of evil is seen in the interpretation of the divine limitation. 
The interpretation of the divine limitation is that it proves that God is not good. Oh, but can't you see by the Holy Spirit of God that the reason God has given us the law that he's given us is because he is good, he does know what's best, and he wants what's best for us. The limitation in the law of God was an expression of God's goodness, was given to us for our good. The suggestion of sin is that the law of God was given to us because God is not good. This is why when we sin, we always depersonalize God and we always dampen God's goodness. It's easy to stray from a law that you think is arbitrary or not worth following. And it's easy to take exception to an ism or a legalistic fact. But if you really see that God is a loving Father you really see that Jesus gave his life in your place, then this is a friend whom you would never wish to betray. It's hard to personally flaunt the face of a friend. God is our good father who's been generous to us, and seeing his goodness can help us away from sin. If that's the third question, how does the good character of God help us to fight against sin? And the fourth question is this, how does the good character of God help me to live day by day? And I'm back to that first question or that first proposition. How we think about God defines and determines how we live. Our actions and attitudes of gratitude and obedience, give thanks to the Lord, obey out of a thankful heart, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. If you believe that God is good and generous, how will you walk through life? If you believe that God is a hard miser and he isn't good, then how will you walk through life? I want to show you this from the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I don't have to read the whole thing and I'm not even necessarily catching the, the main flow of the parable, but I want to show you this and hopefully it'll arrest you in the same way that it arrested me this week when I looked at this. In the parable of the prodigal son, we first hear from the prodigal son a sort of, uh, he's not really understanding his father's goodness, but he's leaning in the right direction. And then we hear from the older brother that he's completely not understanding his father's goodness and he's leaning in the wrong direction. So let's establish this. In the parable of the prodigal son, God is the father and God is good, 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 all the time, all the time, all the time. And so the prodigal son, after he's eating with the pigs and he's starving, he says in Luke 15, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And I'm perishing here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Then he starts going back toward his dad. That's why I say, if you'll permit me this reading of the text, he, he doesn't quite understand the heart of his father, but he's leaning maybe in the right direction. If he really understood the heart of his father, he would know that saying, well, maybe my dad will treat me like a servant, doesn't do enough honor to the heart of his father. 
He doesn't even see how good his dad is. Because you know the story. Even before he gets there, his dad's like going crazy to get him. But he's tipping in the right direction, even though he doesn't capture the goodness of his dad's heart. But then if you remember the older brother who's, who doesn't want to come to the party, in, in uh, verse 29 of Luke 15, the older son's out in the field and he hears the music, but he doesn't want to come in. And so he asks the servants, what's going on? And the servants say, your brother came back and your dad's throwing this party. And it says in verse 28, the older brother was angry and he refused to go in, but his father came out and entreated him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have slaved away for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The older brother says to his father, I have been slaving away for you and you've never done anything good for me. He, he completely misunderstands his father's heart and he's running in the wrong direction. In the meta-narrative of Luke 15, Jesus is making this parable as a point against the Pharisees who are, they're not just wrong. They're wrong precisely in this. The Pharisees are wrong about the good, forgiving heart of God. The Pharisees are treating God like he is a hard miser not like he's a good, forgiving father. And Jesus not only sees the teaching of the Pharisees, but Jesus can see how the teaching of the Pharisees will ruin the lives of those who listen to that teaching. And so Jesus is ferocious in his rebuke against the Pharisees because they are teaching people to have hard thoughts of God. And Jesus knows what hard thoughts of God will do in the life of someone who is never delivered from those hard thoughts of God. And so in Luke 15, the point that Jesus is making about the heart of God is he's saying, the one thing God isn't is a shepherd who's going to hold on to 99 sheep and let one of them die. The one thing God is not is a widow who's going to hold on to nine coins and let one roll with the dust balls under the couch and never think about it. The one thing God is not is a father who's going to leave his son to starve. This absolutely arrested me this week as I was thinking about the character of God. If I believe God is good and generous and forgiving, how will I walk through life? If I believe that God is hard and stingy and judgmental, all these years I've slayed for you and you haven't given me nothing, then how will I walk through life? Let me put this in a question relative to parents, but it can be applied in any context. This is a kind of a depth charge question, like kind of slow burn question. I hope when you hear this question, it never, hope you never unhear it. Parents, which is worse? Thought experiment, which is worse? For a child to be raised by atheist parents, unbelieving parents, who never teach their child anything about God. Or for a child to be raised by parents who go to church and say verbally that God is good and that God saves by grace 
but those parents never live and act like God is good and that God saves by grace, which is worse. As I thought about that and prayed about that this week, it arrested me as a, as a pastor. Do I ever, have I ever in my words and actions caused people to think that God isn't good, that God's some sort of, that, 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 have ever caused people to have hard thoughts of God in church, in our friendships with one another, in our, in our homes, in our marriages, and in our parenting? You know, the point of Luke 15 is that God is so, so much more good than the younger brother or the older brother could ever imagine. The point of James 1, verse 17, is that God is good more so than anyone could ever imagine. The good news of the gospel is that God is good. (coughs) And this good news is gloriously good for our relationships because we can forgive one another with grace and we can be honest with one another about our failures because God is good. And so I say again, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Racine Bible, how we think about God and his goodness determines our attitude and our action in all of life. I want to assure you on holy scripture and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God is good. Think on that. Let it change your heart and so change your life. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.